So we're reading The Dry Divide by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1963. We're on Chapter 3, Judy's Story, and I'm getting to read to you from Illinois, where Papa's recovering from COVID and, and the family's gathered to, to help one another. So, Father, thank you for this time I get to read, and I pray that you strengthen my parents and then uh, give joy to the family as we each think about the ways we can serve and help one another and delight in your goodness every day. In Jesus' name, amen. When Judy called us to supper, she set a tin wash basin on the platform under the mill and went back to the house. The rest of the crew hurried away to wash, leaving Doc and me stragglers. He seemed to be in no hurry and wanted to talk more about our going into the medicine show business, but I told him, keep your shirt on till after supper, Doc. Right now, I'm more interested in fried pork and gravy than medicine. Doc's belly jiggled as he snickered and told me, you'll get your medicine right along with your supper. That hog I cut up was an old boar. By the time he's fried, he's going to be strong medicine. I'd forgotten about Doc's having been at the house till he mentioned the hog, so I asked, what's Judy like? Nice kid, he told me, but no good for the medicine show business. You got to have troopers for that game, gals that can pass a bunch of wisecrackers back as good as they send. This kid's all right, though, for a small-town girl. Knows how to take hold and get things moving. That poor sister of hers is kind of on the skim milk side, beat out by having one youngster right after another, and if I don't miss my guess, she's been doing field work. While Doc and I were waiting our turn at the wash basin, Hudson came back from the pasture, driving half a dozen old milk cows. He didn't look toward us as he closed the lane gate, but rode on through the milking pen, turned his sweat-streaked pony into the crowd, and stalked to the house without coming near us. As the other fellows washed, they stood aside, waiting so we'd all go into supper together. And when we went, I lost my appetite. The half-rancid, nauseating smell of old boar pork came out to meet us. The kitchen was no more than 10 by 12 feet with a hot cook stove at one side and a cream separator in the far corner. An uncovered table of rough boards stood in the center of the room, surrounded by a few rickety chairs, a bench, and a couple of boxes stood on end. <clears throat> Although the door and windows were wide open, the temperatures was, was about 120 degrees and the flies must have liked the smell of boar pork better than I did. <clears throat> the room was swarming with them. Ten places had been set at the table, and in the center there was a bowl of unpeeled boiled potatoes, another of gray milk and flour gravy, two plates of biscuits, and a cracked pitcher that was leaking skimmed milk, a gallon-sized coffee pot, and a platter of fried side meat. Neither Mrs. Hudson, Judy, nor the children were in sight, but Hudson was seated at the far end of the table, shoveling pork and potato into his mouth as though he were stoking a boiler. He didn't look up as we came in. <clears throat> So, after bunching inside the doorway a few moments, we found ourselves seats, everyone trying to stay as far as possible from the stove and the boss. Doc and I were the last in, so had to take seats beside Hudson. Maybe for maybe six or seven minutes, the only sounds were the clicking of knives against plates or someone asking, pass the spuds. Then, from a room beyond a half-closed door behind me, a child coughed and began to cry. Hudson stopped shoveling just long enough to turn his head toward the doorway and sh yell, shut up! And then he went on with his eating, and the child stopped crying. With the first whiff of pork, I had made up my mind that I wasn't going to eat any of it, but I found myself licked. The rest of the meal wasn't exactly planned for a diabetic diet, and the only way I could avoid the, that pork was by sticking to straight-boiled potatoes. The milk pitcher was empty long before it reached me, 
The coffee was as bitter as gall, and both the gravy and the biscuits had been made with grease from the pork, so they were just as rank-tasting as it was. All I could do was to tell myself it wouldn't poison me, and then it would do me less harm than too many potatoes, so I waited in. That pork was sort of like the sulfur and molasses my mother used to give us every spring when we were kids. The first mouthful taste uh, nearly gagged me, but after I got used to it, I could swallow it without too much trouble. And I just reached for my third slab of side meat when Hudson pushed his chair back to the table, took a lantern from a nail above the separator, lit it, and went out. The meal had been gloomy enough that I hadn't noticed twilight was deepening until he lit the lantern, and after he'd gone out, the gathering darkness seemed restful to me. It must have been the same with the other fellows. Though none of them spoke, the tension seemed to drain away. One after another, they left their half-eaten meal and went outside. Being farthest from the door, Doc and I were the last ones out. Paco was waiting at the door of the house. In the dusk, I could see the others straggling away to our camp behind the barn, and a yellow speck of lantern light showed that Hudson was at the header. The wind had gone down with the sun, leaving behind it a void of silence and breathless heat, broken only by an occasional clink of metal at the header. Weary as I was, there seemed no sense in going to lie and sweat on a mattress of prickly straw. Doc must have felt as I did, for without a word, he turned toward the windmill, and I went with him, Paco trailing a step or two behind the mill tower stood on a plank platform about a foot above the ground, just the right height for men to sit restfully, elbows on their knees, and when a man is resting, there's no reason to talk. Gradually, the twilight faded to darkness, broken only by the gleam from Hudson's lanterns and a yellow shaft that reached out across the ground from the kitchen doorway. So slowly it was barely noticeable, the eastern sky lightened until the shape of the land stood black against it, turned a faint pink, then deep into a dusky rose that glowed and expanded as though, far beyond the horizon, there might be an enormous prairie fire. Like a low bank of flame at its center, the dome of the full moon pushed upward, blood red above the black outline of the land. Steadily, the crimson ball rose as if a mighty power were forcing it reluctantly from the molten center of the earth. For a few seconds, it seemed balanced atop the motionless sea of wheat that stretched away in front of us. Then majestically, it sailed free of its anchorage, spilling its light across the silent, sweltering divide. And, as if it had been waiting only for the moonlight, a gentle breeze sprang up to rustle the bearded heads of the wheat with a hushed, whispering sound. As the moon had risen, the only sounds had been the occasional clink of dishes being washed in the kitchen or the stamp of a horse's hoof in the corral. But with the rising of the breeze, the oppressive burden of the heat and the silence were broken. Far away to the south, a coyote voiced his lonesome, wailing, evening song. Locusts and crickets turned their shrill fiddles in the wheat fields. A colt whinnied from the pasture, and from right behind us a cow bellowed the long, low ball of a milker distressed by an overfull udder. With a silence violated, Doc turned toward me and asked, How are your blisters doing, bud? Going to be in shape for handling a pitchfork tomorrow? <clears throat> that won't bother the blisters that, that are biting that won't bother the blisters that are biting me the worst, I told him. It's been ten years since I've ridden a horse bareback. Doc chuckled and asked, seen any rock salt around? There's a block at the end of the pasture lane, I told him. Let's go get a chunk of it, he said. You'll need to harden those hands or you'll set them to bleeding by noontime. We'd just gotten to our feet when Mrs. Hudson came out of the kitchen doorway, two milk buckets in her hand, and started for the milking pen. Her shoulders sagged wearily as though the buckets were already full and the child she carried were burdensome. I hadn't milked a cow since before the war, but I'd never minded milking, so I told Doc, you go ahead and get the salt. I'll give the lady a hand with the milking. She looks beat out. 
As we turned away, Paco stood for a moment between us, confused by the conversation he couldn't understand, then followed at my heels as though he were a puppy. As I neared Mrs. Hudson, I said, I'm Bud, one of the harvest hands, and I'd like the milk. Would you mind if Paco and I did it tonight? At the sound of my voice, she jumped as if frightened, then stopped and turned toward me with the moonlight full on her face. For a second or two, she stood looking bewildered, her mouth partly open as if she wanted to speak but couldn't think of the words. She wet her lips nervously and half stammered. I guess it would be all right. I guess Myron wouldn't. I'm sure he wouldn't mind, I told her. I'm a pretty fair milker, and I'll be careful with your cows. Without a word, she handed me the buckets and hurried back to the house. I couldn't be given a straight A for gallantry on my offer to do the milking. I hadn't half filled the cavity inside me with pork and potato, and milk was the only thing on the place that was on my diet list. At most ranches, I could have made out with raw eggs, but there wasn't a hen on the Hudson Place. As soon as I milked a quart uh, for my first cow, I drank it, and Paco followed suit. <laughs> he was a faster milker than I <laughs> or, got, or got cows that didn't give as much. Um, I just started my third when he finished his, stood up, and carried his bucket away toward the gate. There was no reason to hurry, so I pushed my hat back, leaned my forehead against the cow's side, and listened to the rhythmic music of the milk streams. The last drippings were tinkling into the bucket when a quiet voice behind me said, You're Bud, the one that rode Kitten, ain't you? The voice startled me, for I'd never guessed I wasn't alone, but I knew whose voice it was. It would be... Didn't want to show I was startled, so I turned my head slowly, looked up, and said, Yes, Judy, I'm Bud. And if Kitten is that nice little mare, I'm the one who rode her. Why? I reckon I ought to tell you, she said. Myron's awful mad at you. Nobody but him has ever rode Kitten before, and he's always swore nobody ever could. I don't doubt his swearing, I told her as I rose and moved to step near, but I don't think he's as mad at me anymore. Her back was toward the moon, so I couldn't see her face, but she turned it up toward mine and said, that's because you don't know Myron. He don't forget his mads. and He'll get you. One way or another. He gets everybody sooner or later. He's got sis tied head and foot. She wouldn't dast leave him now, even if she could. <clears throat> Judy seemed to know her to go, and I didn't want her to go. Raising my voice barely enough for Paco to hear, I called him to, to me, passed him my bucket of milk, and in the best Spanish I could muster, told him to take it to the house and to wait to turn the separator for the senora. As he moved away, Judy looked up at me and asked in an odd whisper, You Mex? No, I told her, mostly Scotch and English, way back. I learned to talk the lingo a little when I was a kid working on a cattle ranch in Colorado. That where you learned to ride, she asked? Mm-hmm, I said. But tell me more about Myron. Isn't he a little cracked in the head? As I said it, I slipped my arm inside hers, and she didn't pull away, so I led her toward the platform where Doc and Paco and I had been sitting when the moon rose. Not exactly cracked, she said, but anymore it seems like he's sore at everybody. I waited until we were seated side by side and asked, what's the matter with him? He acted sore as if as the whole bunch of us before I ever got onto Kitten. I didn't take my arm out from under Judy's, but let it slip down so that our hands came together and she didn't take hers away. Well, she said, it goes clean back to the time he first come court and sis, and Pa drove him off. Told him he wouldn't never mount to nothing because he was rough on stock. Myron, he was, a working for old, he was working for old man Macy then, got fired the next day. He blamed it on onto Pa and told him he'd get even, and he did too. How's Judy? How, how, Judy? I asked. Getting sister run off with him, that's how, she told me. He had kitten then, had her when he came when he come riding, riding into Beaver Valley looking for a job. Well, 
when he got fired, he was gone away for a week or two, and when he came back, he was leading Vixen, almost a spitting image of Kitten, only she wasn't mean and ornery. She was the one, she was the one ought to have been named Kitten, clever as a baby kitten. She fell in, Sis fell in love with Vixen and ran away with Myron to get her. She's been paying for it ever since. They couldn't have run far, I said. Isn't that Beaver Valley where that little town sits at the bottom of the divide? Huh? That's Cedar Bluff, she said. Where I live in the summer times. In the winters, I go to high school over to Oberlin and keep, get to keep get my keep for doing dishes and minding the baby for a lady. Her husband's in the bank over there, but Myron hates him because he won't let him have no more money. There won't be none of the bankers. That's why he's having to fix that old header now. <clears throat> in other words, none of the bankers will uh, let him have money. As Judy spoke, I saw Doc coming down the lane toward us. So when she'd finished, I called him quietly. Did you find a salt, Doc? I'll be along in a few minutes. Okay, bud, he called just as quietly. I'll get some brine ready for those blisters. Then he kept straight on. Judy had half risen when I called the Doc, but I'd drawn her back beside me. As soon as he'd passed, she started to rise again and said, I'd best go in now. This might worry. I could hear the whine of the separator from the kitchen, so I told her, wait till Paco finishes the separating. She won't worry while she's busy with the milk. Besides, you haven't told me yet about her running away with Myron. Was that when they came up here? I hadn't sat in the moonlight with a girl for a long, long time, and Judy's hand was as soft as mine. So when I drew her back beside me that second time, I drew her closer. She didn't really pull away, just ooched over a little, leaving two or three inches between us. And I liked her better for it. She sat for a moment, <clears throat> looking up the golden pathway the moonlight made across the wheat field, and then said, Uh-huh, not up here. This would have been too close to home, and Pa would have come to fetch her back. They'd run off to the sand hills up in Nebraska. But Myron didn't do, do no good up there, so they come back. Right at the beginning of harvest, it was, the week before Marty was born. All they had was kitten and vixen, and a filly foal out of each of them. Not even saddles, and Sis rode all that way bareback, and her within a week of her time. There was a catch in her voice as she said the last few words, but it didn't seem right to have any sadness that evening. Not there in the moonlight, so to take her mind off her sister, I said, That's a shame, Judy, but you were going to tell me how Myron got the way he is. <coughs> well, that's when it started, she said. Pa was awful mad and cussed Myron out and told him again he would never amount to nothing. And Myron cussed Pa back and told him he'd show him, and right under his own nose, too. <clears throat> and for a little bit, it looked like he was going to do it. Myron ain't lazy. He hired out for a harvest hand to the banker over to Marion. That's on the Nebraska side of the line. And the banker liked the way he worked and let him have a quarter section of uh, to farm on Havers. It was a good quarter too, up there on the first bench, but didn't have no house on it, so Myron put up a little soddy, no more than 10 feet square, and him and Sis went down there to live, with nothing but a straw bunk and a coal oil stove. How could he farm a quarter section with two little ponies like Kitten, I asked. He couldn't, she told, him, told me. That's when his bad trouble started. The banker left him have money to buy a heavy team and seed wheat, and a second-hander disc and seed and he didn't take no mortgage, only on the next year's crop. But Myron didn't buy no seed and didn't plant no crop, leastways not on that quarter. That's when he bought Lucy and Lily, the two bay mares out there in the corral. They were sure a fine team then, and Lucy didn't get foundered till that winter. Left her stand out when she was sweated up. And he bought two new sets of harness and a brand new wagon and disc and cedar and a couple of cows with heifer calves. Myron, Myron was flying high then. Guess he was trying to show Pa and the banker that he was smarter than them.
he brought all the stuff across the state line and mortgaged it to a banker over to Oberlin, the one I had mined the baby and washed dishes for his wife when I'm going to school. And he used the mortgage money to pay a year's cash rent for a half section west of the bluffs so he wouldn't have to share a crop with nobody. While Judy had been talking, I'd heard the separator word to a stop. Then Paco came out to the corner of the house, stood for a moment or two, and went on toward the barn. I knew Judy should have gone in, but I was interested in her story, and I liked sitting with her there in the moonlight. So I asked, didn't the first banker sue Myron and take the crop on the place west of the bluffs? Oh, he sued him, she said, but he couldn't get the crop. That was there what there was of it. You see, as soon as Myron got the late lease, he mortgaged the crop to Bones. He's the banker over to Cedar Bluffs to raise money for seed and a couple more cows and horses. Oh, I said, then that banker got the crop. No, she told me, he didn't neither. Pa says the Lord took it away from Myron on account of him trying to be a thief. Him insists. She was proud of him then. <clears throat> as stout as lots of men worked night and day till deep frost came, getting 260 acres of wheat planted. The next spring, they put the 60, other 60 in the corn. Wore the horses, all six of them down, to skin and bones. Then, just when the wheat was making head, the hail hit him. The streak wasn't no more than half a mile wide and too long, but it beat all the wheat and most of the corn back into the ground. The rest of it didn't amount to much. was just enough to eke them through the winter. Bones, he took the two new horses and cows so as to get something out of his mortgage, and the banker over to Oberlin took the wagon and disconcedered. They'd have took the rest of the stock, too, only Lucy was a already foundered. The cows were too thin to sell, and nobody wants ornery little mustangs. That's when Myron turned sour on everybody. He figured like they'd tromped on him when he was down, and he'd been hunting for somebody to tromp on ever since. There ain't a banker up or down the valley, but he's tangled with, and the both of them lose every time. Well, if they lose every time, how can he keep going, I asked. She hunched her shoulders, <clears throat> a particle, and said, my taking was left. With wheat as high as it is now, the owners will allow anybody to take land on shares before leaving it lie fallow. Now, no farmer that can get anything else will take the land way up here. Before this one, the last big crop on this divide was the year System Iron got hailed out. Every year till now, they've had a failure and got kicked off the place they was on. They had to move higher onto the divide. For half a minute, she sat silently looking down at our hands that held us together and yet apart, then said wistfully, They'd have been rich by now, the war coming on and wheat going up the way it has, and all, if Myron hadn't tried to outsmart the banker over to Marion. That quarter section he put him on has raised 30 bushels of wheat to the acre ever since. Their half would have fetched nearly on to $5,000 every year, but Myron, he couldn't be satisfied to be a quarter section farmer. His trouble is he rares at it too hard and expects everybody else to, and he tries to be smarter than he is, and his word ain't good. He's took on more land with every move, as fast as the colts grew big enough to wear harness. They're all out of kitten and vixen, her mate that sis married him for, and that died last winter. And Myron keeps him so mean and ornery the banker's desk doesn't foreclose on him. This year he's got two sections in wheat and a quarter in corn. That's why nothing is ready for harvest. Sis has been too poorly this spring to help with the corn and being a ready being a ready mortgage to the neck and in trouble with all the bankers, Myron couldn't get a loan to hire help. Working alone, it took him till June to get the last of the corn planted, and with this hot wind coming on, he'd have lost it before harvest was over if he didn't get it just hoed. He finished last night, but that's Myron for you. He always bites off a bigger chunk than he can chew, then blames everybody else if it chokes him. There were still a few things that puzzled me, so I asked, if the bankers wouldn't make him a loan for hiring help to put in 160 acres of corn... 
why did they loan him enough to help him for him to help plow and seed 1,280 acres of wheat? He couldn't have done that alone. He didn't, and they didn't, she told me. There wasn't an acre of it neither plowed nor seeded. Last year's crop was so poor it wasn't worth harvesting, so it was left standing in the fields. That's how Myron got the place. Then him and Sis hogged it back in, you know, disking both ways across it, and it took them till freeze over to get it done. <clears throat> it's a miracle they got a volunteer crop like this one, and it'll be a bigger miracle if they get it harvested before it shatters or the hail gets it. She sat silently for a few seconds, just looking off across the moonlit fields, then said, almost in a whisper, I hope the Lord didn't, don't let nothing happen to it. It would be awful hard on Sis and the children. This is the first time they've had better in a Saudi to live in, and there ain't no place to move to after you get kicked off the top of the divide. Although I knew Judy had no idea she was doing it, what she really told me was that we'd hired out to a man who didn't have a dime with which to pay our wages and who was crooked enough that he'd try to beat us out of the money even if he did have it. Of course, I had no way of knowing how big the mortgages and judgments against this crop might be or if the laws of Kansas would let them stand ahead of wage claims. But that was nothing to worry Judy with. Don't you worry about it, Judy, I told her. Unless Myron goes out of his way to pick a fight, and I don't think he will, I'll do all I can to help with this, get this crop harvested and to keep the crew on the job. She turned her face toward mine, her eyes warm in the soft light, the breeze stirring a chestnut brown lock that lay across her forehead, and her lips parted slightly as if she were going to speak. When she didn't, I bent my face close to hers, but she sprang to her feet as if frightened, and there was a touch of tremble in her voice as she told me quickly, I got to go now, bud. Sis will be worried. Then she scampered away to the house like a startled quail. <clears throat> Hudson left the header just as I reached the barn, and when I went around to our camp, Gus and Lars were snoring in the tent. Edgar and Everett had spread miscellaneous clothing atop the blackened heap of straw and were sleeping there, stripped to their BVDs. Old Bill and Jicus were wrapped in their blankets and asleep on their straw mattresses. Paco lay on the naked mattress beside him, still fully dressed with his sombrero hiding his face from the moonlight. Doc sat apart from the others, dozing, though not asleep. I hadn't made a sound that came around the barn, but he raised his head and asked, Conquest? No, I told him. Not even a goodnight kiss. She's a nice little girl, and from what she tells me, your guess isn't too wrong, far wrong on Hudson, except that he's no drunk. Hold it till you get your boots off and your hands and feet soaking in this brine, he told me. Wheat beards will raise old Ned with those blisters unless you get them hardened up. It couldn't have hurt much more if I'd stuck my hands and feet into a fire instead of the bucket of brine. But Doc made me keep them there while I told him the story Jody, Judy had told me. When I'd finished, I said, you've got to do something to get Hudson out of the way tomorrow night. I'm going to take that little mare and ride to town. I promised the little girl to stick it out unless she keeps on trying to pick a, unless he keeps on trying to pick a fight. And I'd do my best to keep the cow crew on the job. But there's no sense in our being stuck for our wages. There's only one way I can think of to head it off. The banker has a mortgage against his crop but he can't collect unless it's harvested before it shatters. <clears throat> I'm going to put the B on him to guarantee our wages. Now you're whistling, Doc told me. When you come back, when you came back, I was sitting here thinking we'd best move on in the morning, as soon as we'd had another bait of that delicious pork. <laughs> but maybe you've got an idea. I'd risk a day's work if I thought it would do that woman and those poor little kids any good. And I'd risk three or four of them if I was your age. And a nice little turtle dove would sit in the moonlight and spoon with me. Right now, we'd better turn in. We've got a big day ahead tomorrow. I'd caught a glimpse of Paco when I first came into camp, but had forgotten about him until I was loosening my belt to lie down. Then a pinch came into my throat at the sight of him lying there on the naked heap of straw, his beautiful blanket spread over the larger and deeper pile beside it. He lay as peacefully as a contented baby, 
but I couldn't leave him there while Doc and I went to bed on his blanket, and I was afraid I might hurt his feelings if I woke him and told him to move over. I think Doc knew how I felt, and I didn't have to tell him what I wanted to do. Together, we lifted the sleeping boy carefully and laid him on the center of his blanket. He didn't wake when we slipped off our overalls and lay down beside him. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Because uh, Paco just loves um, Ralph because Ralph is willing to speak Spanish with him, and so he'll follow him anywhere to, to help out or do anything. Anyway, it's pretty cool.